Well, today, if you would open your Bibles with me, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 4, looking at verses 1 through 7. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. It's been several weeks since we've been in the book of Galatians. We started the sermon series called Gospel Freedom for Godly Living back earlier in the year. And we took a few weeks off to celebrate Holy Week as we talked about Palm Sunday and then, of course, Resurrection Sunday. And last week, I was so thankful that Thomas Carinard was able to be here to share God's word with you. But today, we're getting back into our sermon series called Galatians, Gospel Freedom for Godly Living. And today, I want to talk to you about God's plan of adoption, God's plan of adoption. So as we honor the reading of God's word, if you are able, I'd like to invite you to stand with me. As we read his word together, beginning in chapter 4, looking at verses 1 through 7. The Apostle Paul writes, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The word of God. You may be seated. It was just a couple of of months ago that we were out in El Paso, Texas on a little bit of a trip out west. And I remember while we were out in El Paso, I thought about two friends that I had when I was growing up. These two friends were actually from El Paso, Texas, but they lived in our hometown in Tennessee. And the reason that they moved from El Paso to Tennessee was because there was a couple in our church who adopted them as their children. And when I was young, I had a hard time understanding exactly what adoption was all about. And I remember my mother explaining to me, she said, well, what happened was, is that for some reason, they were no longer able to live with their natural parents. So these two parents searched out for them and found them and brought them into their family to bring them in just as if they were their natural children. And they treat them exactly the same way as if they had had them as their natural children. And I remember that was so incredible, thinking about how that worked. And and if you knew this family, they were so loving and they got along so well and they were just a great family that you would have no idea that they were not a natural family together. You know, adoption is a wonderful and loving thing. For those who feel led in their lives to pray and to seek out a child or maybe children who is in need of new parents. And especially for those who go through the proper channels, who search out for these children who have a need and and they look for them and they eagerly love them and desire for them to come into their family. And then they adopt them and treat them just the same as if they had had them naturally, giving them all the rights and privileges of natural children, bringing them into their family. That is such a wonderful and beautiful picture. Perhaps you know someone who has been adopted, or maybe you've adopted children, or maybe you were even adopted yourself. And you know firsthand how wonderful and beautiful that is when, needed, when children are in adopt, adopted by uh, great, wonderful parents. 
But you know, adoption is so loving and beautiful that the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of Scripture to use adoption as a metaphor to describe our salvation. That we are adopted into the family of God. It's the message that God sought us out as sinners when we had nothing that we could do to help ourselves out of our sinful condition. That God sought us out through his love and his grace and his mercy and through faith in the person and work of Christ, God actually brought us into the family of God, giving us all of the rights of sonship, giving us all of the privileges of being in the kingdom, and most of all, giving us eternal fellowship with him forever and ever as a member of his family. That is what it means to be adopted by God, or what we may call spiritual adoption. And it's the greatest privilege that any of us could ever receive. And it only comes through the grace of God, through the person and work of Christ, spiritual adoption. Well, you know, since we've been studying Galatians, one of the main problems that Paul has been dealing with is this misunderstanding of how one actually becomes a member of the family of God. How does a person get saved? And, you know, Paul, back in the days before he wrote Galatians, he actually went to this province there in modern-day Turkey, And he planted a number of churches. And he planted these churches on the truth of the gospel. The good news that God, although seeing us as sinners and rebellious creatures, sent his son into the world, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, to die a substitutionary death, fulfilling all the requirements that is needed for us to come into God's kingdom, And giving us the opportunity that that for those of us who place faith in Christ, we can be in the family of God. God can adopt us through the person and work of Jesus. That is the good news of the gospel. That is what Paul founded these churches upon, just like all other true church plants are founded upon today. But as we know, after Paul left, a group of false teachers came into this area. They were known as the Judaizers. And these false teachers were teaching a very different message than Paul, especially when it came to salvation. You see, they taught that although following Jesus was important and you needed to follow what Jesus said, if you really wanted to be in the family of God, you had to become like a Jew. You had to become circumcised. You had to look to the Old Testament laws and try to do everything that God said in the Old Testament, doing all of the the, the laws as far as the regulations and the worship and the, the requirements, all the ceremonies, fulfilling all of these things. And once you had done all of these things enough, you would perhaps build up enough spiritual credit with God to where he would bring you into his family based upon what you had done in your efforts to please him. So in other words, you would kindly adopt yourself into the family of God. This is false teaching. They were teaching a faith plus works version of the gospel. But you know, this is not just an ancient teaching that was going on in the first century. This is a teaching that has been happening ever since the beginning of time, and it continues even today. There are many people in our world today who believe and teach that salvation is all about doing enough good works in order to please God. That if you want to be in God's family, if you want to have eternal life, if you want to receive his blessings... 
then it's all about doing enough. If you attend church enough, if you read your Bible enough, if you worship enough and pray enough and give enough money and help enough people and make sure that your good outweighs your bad and, and you try hard and do all of these things just right, then perhaps if you've done enough in the end, God is going to bring you into his family and give you eternal life. That's the same teaching that we see throughout our culture today. But the question I want to pose to you this morning is what is the true way to become a member in the family of God? How do we get there? What is required of us? What do we need to do or what do we need to believe in order to become one of God's children? What is the right way to understand the gospel? Well, the answer is very simple. It's very simple. If we want to be in the family of God, we must receive spiritual adoption. We must be adopted. There's no other way that we can enter into God's family other than for God to adopt us through the person and work of Christ, which is accessed through our faith in him. That is the way that we come into the family of God. Some of you may be wondering, well, how does this spiritual adoption happen? It's not like we call an adoption agency and sign up to be adopted. How do we get adopted into the family of God? And how can we make sure that we have received this adoption? In other words, how can we know that we are in the family of God through this way? Well, these are questions that Paul answers here in chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. And I've divided this passage for us today in a very Trinitarian way. Because I want us to understand spiritual adoption through the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there are some aspects that I want you to see about spiritual adoption today so that you can be sure to know that you are in the family of God. Well, I want to begin by looking at adoption is appointed by the Father because of sin. Adoption is appointed by the Father because of sin. You see, the Bible teaches a glorious truth that God established this plan of adoption way before the foundation of the world. In other words, before God created the universe, he already knew that he was going to have to save sinners and bring them out of the sinful state and into his family, into the eternal life. And God revealed this plan of adoption in the Old Testament. We see it in a number of places. But one of the most important places is where God revealed his plan of adoption to Abraham in Genesis chapters 12 and 15 and other places. You see, God told Abraham and he promised Abraham that he was going to bless the entire world through him and that his people in this blessing would be as numerous as the stars of the heavens, as the sand of the seashore, as the dust of the earth. And we later understand and find out that the blessing that was going to come through the whole world through Abraham was actually through Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ came into the world as God's son, the Messiah. He was a natural descendant of Abraham. And it was through this seed that led up to Jesus Christ that God was going to save the world from sin and death. And he would bring salvation to sinners all over the world from all ethnicities and cultures and races and every walk of life. God was going to make salvation available to everyone who would believe. That's what the Bible teaches about the gospel. But you see, like so many people in our world today, the Jewish people believed that they could earn their salvation by keeping God's law. 
They didn't think that it was a promise that God was going to fulfill in them through faith. But yet, if they could be good enough to keep the law and try hard enough and do all of these things, then somehow they would earn their way into God's family and be saved. But you know, Paul shows us in many places, and especially here, that this is utterly impossible. That a person can never earn their way into heaven. They can never be good enough by keeping God's law to receive salvation. Because no one has the ability to live perfectly, which is what God requires. So God provided a way for us to be adopted through Christ. And I want you to see how Paul illustrates this here in verses 1 and 2. Paul begins with this illustration. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. You see, in ancient times, there was a great division between childhood and adulthood. When a person, whether it be Jew or Gentile, was a child, even though they had a great inheritance that was laid up for them by their parents, they couldn't receive that inheritance until they had reached the proper age. Now, for Jewish boys, it was the age of 12, and for Gentiles, most of the time, it was the age of 18, but it really came down to whenever their father said that they were ready to receive this inheritance. And even though they owned everything, as he says here, they had they were owners of everything that their father had in store for them, they couldn't receive what they had until they reached this particular age. So in order to keep them in line, to keep them doing what the parents required of them before they would receive this inheritance, their parents often assigned slaves or others who would be like guardians and, guardians and managers of their children. And throughout ancient history, we see this in a lot of writings outside of the Bible as well, that there were these managers who would look after the children until they were fully grown. They were like custodians or, or uh, you know, they, they were like helpers that would help these families. So these, these uh, managers, they would make sure that the child was educated. They would train the child in the basic duties of life. They would make sure that the child was disciplined, often disciplining the child themselves. They would look out for the child and protect them and making sure they were walking in the path that their parents wanted them to go in. They would make sure they were dressed for school, that they would get there safely, that they lived in a way that was honorable. And that was the role of these guardians and these managers that were over the children. And you may say, well, what does this have to do with the gospel? What does this have to do with the the doctrines of grace and Christ and all these other things? Well, Paul is using this here to show us an example of what Israel was going through before the time of Christ. Notice he says in verse 3, In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, the example that he just gave is a picture of what Israel was going through before Christ came. Now, let's think about this for a moment. Israel had already been given the promise of salvation through the one who was coming from Abraham. And not only would it be for Israel, but it would be for anyone in the world who would believe. He says that your blessings and all these promises are good for the entire world. So until the time that Christ came, God gave Israel the law through Moses, the Ten Commandments and all the laws of the Old Testament. And the reason that he gave them the law was to show them who he was, what he expected. He would guide them down the path that God desired. It would keep them out of trouble, keep them away from consequences. But most of all, the law would show them 
that no matter how hard they tried to do it, they couldn't. And they needed someone to save them, to bring them to God. It was to show them that they were really failures, that they could not live perfectly according to what God has told them and according to who God is. That was the purpose of the law. But if you notice here, Paul says not only were they children, but they were enslaved to these elementary principles. Now, what does it mean to be enslaved to elementary principles? Well, the word elementary here means basic. It's talking about the most basic thing, like the ABCs of life. What is most basic? Well, here's the problem. The Jewish people believed that rather than the law pointing to their need for Christ, that they could actually save themselves through their own workings of the law. And this was an elementary principle in the sense that this is what the entire world believes to be true. Ever since the beginning of Adam and Eve in the garden, mankind has thought that it could do enough in order to please God and be saved. If you remember in the garden after Adam and Eve fell, what did they do? They covered themselves with their own fig leaves, trying to hide themselves from God to make a covering for their own sin. In other words, they were trying to cover themselves to make themselves right before God. And ever since that point, all throughout history, mankind has had this issue where we feel that if we can do enough in our lives to please God, that he will accept us. That's the elementary principle. If you notice that Paul says that the law is not the problem, but it's, the problem is their enslavement to it, their enslavement to these things. Why does he say enslavement? Because you see, when you try to keep the law and you try to do what's right in order to please God and you make this your hope and you, know, you, you try hard and hard to do all of these things right, believing that if you can do enough, you can be saved, you quickly realize that you will never get there because ever how hard you try to do what's right, you will fail even more you'll realize that you're just a failure I mean how many of you have tried to do what's right every single day but at the end of the day you look back and say you know what I really failed today I didn't get where God wanted me to be I did a few things he said but not everything that he said so if you're depending upon your own works for salvation it's a form of enslavement it's like being in spiritual prison because the harder you try the the deeper you get and and you realize after a while that there's no way you'll ever get out of this thing alive Because you can't be good enough in order to please God. That's spiritual enslavement. So the law was not intended to save people, but to show them that they were sinners in need of a Savior. And I can tell you, if there's any one of you here today who believe that by your own good works and effort that you're going to please God enough to save you, you are in for a major problem. You will never be able to do enough personally for God to open the gates of heaven and say, please come in. You will never be able to do enough personally to get access to God, to be in his family. So God set up this plan of adoption because of our sin. He never intended for us to be saved by trying hard enough, but he set this up to show us that we need a savior. We need someone to adopt us out of this sinful state and bring us into the family of God. And that's where I want us to look next, is that adoption is accomplished through the work of the Son. So the Father set up the plan to save us, but how does he do it? He sends the Son to make sure that our spiritual adoption takes place. Now notice here what he said in verses 4 and 5. But, big contrast, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Here he tells us that the law was not intended to save us, but it was only 
keeping us until the point that Christ actually came into the world to save us. Now, what did Jesus do in order to earn our adoption? Why is he the only way that it could happen? Why is he our only hope? Well, I want you to notice three very important reasons here that Paul gives us of why Jesus is the only way. First, he says here that when the fullness of time had come, this is the first Christmas when Jesus arrived, it says first that he was born of a woman, that he was born of a woman. So the main reason here I want you to see is that he represented mankind. He was born of a woman just like all of us were born into this world. Now this description here indicates that not only is Jesus fully God, but he's also fully man. And he was born just like the rest of us. Now you say, why is that important? Why couldn't Jesus just come down from heaven like an angel, like he ascended to heaven? Why couldn't he just descend and come into the earth? We see if Jesus was going to be our savior, if he was going to be the one to pay for our spiritual adoption, he would need to represent us and be just like us in order to die for us. He would need to be just like us in order to fully take our place so God could be satisfied with us through what Jesus was going to do. He couldn't be an angel. He couldn't be a mannequin. He couldn't be anything else other than a real human just like us. It's like it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So Jesus had to represent mankind to be the Savior. And that's why Paul says that he was born just like us. But another reason that Jesus is the only Savior is because he righteously kept the law. He righteously kept the law. Look what Paul continues to say here. He was not only born of a woman, but he was born under the law. Now, like any other person, Jesus was born into this world under the regulations and restrictions of God's law. Everything that the Old Testament said about how we should live before God also applied to Jesus. It applied to him. But unlike any person that's ever been born, Jesus completely lived the law to perfection. He did every single thing that God required of us to do. He did it perfectly. And you say, well, why is that important? Well, it's important because the only way that we would ever get into heaven is if we had a perfect record with no flaws. That's a pretty tough standard, isn't it? To live an entire life with no sin, to do everything perfectly as God has called us to do. Well, you know what? The Lord Jesus lived that way. He did everything perfectly from A to Z, beginning to end, all throughout his life. And the only way that he can ever really be our substitute is if he lived perfectly the way that we were supposed to live. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus perfectly fulfilled everything that God told us to do that we couldn't do in our place. It says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, that he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So Jesus lived this perfect life that God called for us to live. So he righteously kept the law. But there's a third reason that Paul shows us here why Jesus is the only Savior. And it's that he, repay, he paid the required price. He paid the required price. Look what it says here in verse 4. He was born of a woman, born under the law, verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
You see, the word redeem here literally means to buy out or to buy back. And it was used of slaves who could have their freedom purchased for a price. And by payment of required price, slaves were redeemed and became free citizens. And this points to Jesus' substitutionary death for sinners. You see, not only did Jesus, was he born like us, not only did he live a perfect life like we should have lived, but it says that he went to the cross to die a death that we deserved. You see, because we are sinners and we have all of these sins in our lives that will be judged before God, it was required that Jesus would go to the cross to pay for all of these sins so that we could be forgiven. And this is exactly what Christ did. It says in Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 9, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So Jesus Christ did everything that was required of us in order to be saved. Whereas we committed sin and have fallen from God and have no ability to save ourselves, Jesus came into the world just like us. He lived a perfect life that we didn't live. He died a death in our place so that we could be forgiven. And he has given us the rights and the ability to be in the family of God if we trust and place our faith in him. It says here that we actually receive adoption as sons. Like I said in the beginning, the word adoption refers to giving someone the status of sonship, to bring someone into a family. And because of what Jesus did, you now have the opportunity to come into the family of God. And that is so, so important. So I don't know where you stand today when it comes to your salvation. If you've trusted in your own works, in your baptism, in your church membership, if you've trusted in trying to be good enough to be saved, I can promise you, you will never get there in those ways. The only way that you can be saved is to receive this wonderful blessing of adoption through the Lord Jesus Christ, through turning to him in faith and believing upon his name. That is the only way. So that's how you get into the family of God. But before we finish, I want to add one more truth that we see here in this passage. And it revolves around the question of how can we know for certain if we are in the family of God? In other words, how can you know if you've been adopted? Well, look with me in the last truth here, that adoption is affirmed through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Adoption is affirmed through the presence of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about God's plan from the foundations of the world to save us because of our sin. We've talked about sending Christ, the Son of God, to do everything that's required to save us from our sin. But how can we be sure that we have been saved from our sins? Notice what he says here in verse 6 and 7. He says, And because you are sons of God, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The Bible teaches here that the way that you can be certain that you are a believer is if you have received the Holy Spirit of God into your life. The Holy Spirit. So what are the indications that you have received this Holy Spirit? Well, the first indication is simply that the Spirit has made residence in your life that he has actually come into your life. Now, if you've placed your trust in Christ and you've been born again, the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit will fill your heart. It's not just for some, it's for everyone who trusts in the Lord Jesus. 
The Holy Spirit will fill your heart and regenerate you and make you into a new person. Jesus told the disciples the night before he died that if he leaves them, he is going to send one who will come and walk alongside with them, that will be with them at every moment. And he was talking about the paraclete or the Holy Spirit, the one who indwells and comes alongside. And in Acts chapter 2, after Jesus ascends into heaven, the Spirit comes upon the believers there in the church. And he still comes upon everyone who believes until this present day. That is the role of the Holy Spirit. And you know, Paul says in Romans chapter 8 verse 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So it doesn't matter how many steps you've taken to be saved or how long or active you've been in the church or all the things that you can vouch that you've done. If the Holy Spirit of God is not within you, you are not really saved. You are not one of his children because no one can know God without the Spirit coming to him. So you will receive the Holy Spirit. But another indication is that believers will recognize a new nature. You will recognize a new nature. You know, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and passed away. Behold, the new has come. You see, if you have the Holy Spirit in your life, there will be a radical change that will take place within you. Paul wasn't kidding when he said that the old is gone and the new has come. Now, what does this mean? Well, you see, what it means is that when the Spirit comes into your life, he changes your heart and gives you a new heart. He, he gives you the desires to do what God wants you to do. He gives you a hatred for not doing the, th- or, or a hatred for doing the things God doesn't want you to do. He gives you a new life. He changes your mind about things. He changes your heart. He gives you the desire to obey God. And he gives you the hatred of sin. Now this doesn't mean that you will never sin or that you will always do what God wanted you to do. But it means that your heart will eagerly desire to do the work of the Lord. And it will utterly hate the sin that's in your life. And you will notice there's a big struggle that takes place within you when it comes to doing right and wrong. That you're, even though you may want to do something that's wrong, your heart will hate it and you will have a struggle to do what is right. That's how you can know that the Spirit of God is working in you. See, people who are practicing religion but don't have the Spirit of God within them, they don't really care if they do wrong or right, as long as they do whatever they think it takes in order to get to heaven. But the people who've been filled with the Spirit of God have a new conscience, a new heart. They've been born again, and it's evident by a change in their lifestyle. So believers recognize that the Spirit is in their heart by being this new person. But finally, we know that believers recognize God as their Father. Look what he says here at the end of verse 6. That God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You see, when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, as you're adopted into God's family, He gives your heart a strong desire to know and to love God. God is no longer just this this judge that's out there in the universe that you're trying to, to do everything you can to please in order to get to heaven. God becomes a father to you. He becomes a very personal father in the sense that you have a close relationship to him where you love him. You know, the, the word um, father here, or Abba, it means daddy or papa in the ancient language. It's a title of endearment. It's that God is close to you just like a father would be, and you love him and desire to serve him. It's really describing the intimate relationship with, that you have with God. And this is why when God 
calls upon you to do something, you want to obey. You love him. You're not fearful of him in the sense of what he may do to you. You know that he's got grace and love for you. He wants to give you good things. That's the relationship that the Spirit will bring about in your life. You see, it says in Romans 8, 16, that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. See, I believe that if you, the Bible teaches that if you really want to know if you're saved, if you're in the family of God, if you've been adopted, the Spirit will give you peace and knowledge that you do have this relationship with God. You see the difference in your life. You see the love that you have for Father, the love you have for others. You will be a completely new person as a result of God's Spirit working in you. And the Spirit will testify to your heart that you are in the family of God. That's what we see happening here in this passage. So everyone who's ever lived in the world must be spiritually adopted into the family of God. It's God's desire for sinners. He accomplished it through the work of his son, and he affirms the truth of it in our lives through the Holy Spirit. And I hope that today that you can glorify God because you're adopted into his family, having the rights and privileges of a child of the king, or... Today, you will decide to turn to Christ so that you can come into the family of God through this spiritual adoption. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for this day. It's time that we could be here to worship you and to glorify you and to seek your wisdom and your will through your word. And Father, I'm just so thankful for what you're doing in our church and in the lives of those who worship and serve. And Father, I pray that today, that as we talk about spiritual adoption, that you would just remind us each and every day of the position and the status that we have with you in our lives, that you are truly our Father in heaven, that you are our King, our Savior, the one who provided salvation in a way that we could never achieve on our own. And Lord, that we would live and glorify you in that way. But Father, if there are some here today who have never trusted in you, they've never turned to you in faith to be forgiven and be brought into your family, Lord, that you would just show them their need, the need they have for Christ. That your grace would come upon them, Lord, enabling repentance in their lives so that they could turn to you and be saved. So, Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit, for the work of Christ, and for your grace. We give glory to Christ in all of these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.